This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With us in studio is Dean Gurney, also from Sands & Associates. He's the president, has over 30 years of experience practicing in the areas of personal and corporate insolvency and restructuring. Dean, of course, has a huge skill set, deep experience for all the clients that he meets, recognizing the stress and confusion that those facing financial difficulty often feel and uses an empowerment through knowledge approach. I love this quote, Dean. Whenever I'm assisting a Sands & Associates client, my goal is to educate them on their financial requirements so they're better able to function in today's financial environment. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to be here today. Yay. So we're talking about credit trends. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. So Dean, I, we were chatting a little bit ahead of this and obviously, uh, well, obviously because our listeners can't see us, but you've been a trustee longer than I have. So I've been a trustee myself about the last 10 years, but Dean, you date back to early 80s, not to date you too too much, but um, <laughs> I thought for today, if you can, if we can talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen as a trustee, how credits evolved over time, you know, what was it like when you started to become a trustee and what have you seen today? Because there's so many innovations, so many more ways to to get people into trouble. So it's kind of how do we get to this mess that we're in now, I think, is, is, is kind of the focus of today's segment. Sure. And um, in the 1980s, you know, uh, credit was uh, just beginning, becoming its uh, into its fruition, and that's when things really started out. But as most people refer to the 19, early 1980s as the, the Great Recession and the, because of the high interest rates, 23, 20, 23 percent. We're talking mortgage rates over 20 oh, percent, right? That's correct. God, and, that's insane, uh, some, right? <laughs> some, some people, some parents and some people that were, that were communicating with uh, through this uh, radio show remember those times. <laughs> and they tell their children about those times, but they don't believe it because we only have interest rates of 2 and 3 and 4%. Yeah. Uh, but to pay that kind of debt, it was huge in the particular point in time, and there was uh, 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 there was catastrophic, I'll call it, uh, business failures at that particular point in time, and um, and and that's when I I started. But really, I started uh, with uh, kind of a trying this job out uh, to see if I really liked it or not. But more than that, I I had in the back of my mind, I had that uh, one of these days the economy is going to work out and everything's going to be fine, and um, and uh, the economy will come back and I will be out of a job. There'll be so, no need for trustees, right? No need for trustees <laughs> because before that, trustee work was a was a was uh, done by accountants and it was a part-time job with the, in the accounting firm. So, you know, the accountants did their accounting thing and they did bankruptcy on the side um, and, that was, uh, and that was about it. But after 1980, uh, that, was a, that was a a gone uh, practice. You mm-hmm. know, now, now uh, you see uh, uh, accountants do their thing and trustees and bankruptcy, we do our thing when we only uh, communicate with each other when we need them. Uh, 
So, so, so from that environment, then um, you know you got to remember that uh, we were, we didn't have the credit facilities that we had today. We had to go to the, to the bank between ten and ten and three. Mm-hmm. If you didn't make it to the bank, there you know you basically you had no money for the for no, the weekend. No bank machines then. No bank machines. No nothing. And uh, so what happened uh, in those days is that credit or I'm sorry, gas companies uh, brought out credit card. Okay? Oh, yeah. oh they were a, the first ones. That's hmm. right. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, uh, and that's, uh, and that was the first uh, credit that was available. And really, the, the simple philosophy was: okay, you got the money in the bank, you need to get, get, you need gas, so you put it on this card, and you know, next week or when the bill comes in, you pay it because right. you got the money in the bank. Hmm. And really, that's way the way people should be conducting themselves today. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's not what happens. So uh, and 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 you know again the 1980s were was a trend where housing prices were moderate. Uh, uh, you had you had to put down uh, 10, 15 percent uh, to get a to qualify for a mortgage. If you wanted a credit card, then uh, the, the banks issued credit cards. Visa was just starting to come out then, but you had to be a preferred creditor with the bank. If you weren't the if you weren't mm. one of the high income rollers with the with, with the banks at that time, you didn't get one of these cards. And, you know, and of course, they were kind of a, a prestigious thing because when you went out and you got credit and you put your credit card down, obviously, it was, it was like a, a, show a, a of go- it was like a gold American Express Absolutely. card. You know, like it was yeah. like you know, prestige. It was yeah. prestige and everything else. But, you know, of course, uh, as time goes on, the credit is becoming easier. There's been more players come into the marketplace. Uh, people have given uh, more and more credit uh, for uh, for less and less security. I guess you could call it that. Sure. And uh, what is it? What is event over that period of time is that w- where we are today. Which the most surprising thing about uh, the credit we have today is that it's been somewhat facilitated by recessions that we've had along the way, or downturns in the economy. I'll hmm. call them. So what is uh, and and every one of the downturns since 1980 that have taken place, the, ironically, has been recovered by consumer spending. Right. Consumer spending on borrowed money. And that that exists today. So every time that the government says, you know, things are slowing down, well, we gotta we gotta get people spending money here somehow because that's what's going to drag us out of this recession. And uh, so, and and a lot of times uh, for the last few recessions, that's exactly what has happened is that we've we've dragged ourselves out of this. But but the borrowing and the spending continues, and that's how people get themselves into more. Credit card. Problem. It's so available, though. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, uh, to go from from gas companies to to banks and being a preferred customer. I mean, you can be offered five or six credit cards at any given time, depending on mm-hmm. the institution. They can access your, you know, get a hold of you through your ma- mailing address. But students, parents give oh, yeah. their students who are away in university or college, and. Uh, or just go go shopping at your favorite retail store. Someone someone will stop you in the aisle. You need a credit card. We'll give you this free blanket or something like that. Yeah, like, or a department yeah. store. If you're yeah, buying exactly. something, they say, "Oh, well, do you have one of our cards?" No. Oh, well, would you like one? You'll get fifteen percent off if you sign up right now. And I'm thinking, sounds good. You know, let's sign up. And a lot of people, a lot of people do exactly do that. that. They walk yeah. into the store, they sign those things, not knowing what they're getting involved in, and then the temptation is too great. It is. Well, even you know, you spoke about uh, students there a minute ago. 
though. Like on registration week, uh, I'm Blair and I, when Blair and I went to university, this didn't exist. But on registration week, you go in there and you got all these credit card companies lined exactly. up wanting to yep. give you credit cards. Uh, well, you know, when we went to school, that didn't exist. Exactly. But nowadays, like they're just dying to uh, keep on advancing this money. Um, it's all. It's up to everybody. Uh, to say no, you know, you have to know what your limits are and, and you have to basically control your credit and do a proper budget and make sure that you make sure that you live within your means and, and uh, always, always have some money in the bank so that if you do buy something, you have the ability to pay. It's almost like, Dean, you've got to do the opposite of what the herd, so to speak, what everybody else is doing. Because thinking about what you're saying about, you know, the consumer-driven recoveries from the recession, the metric of consumer debt-to-income, that's just went up, 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 up for the last 30 years. We've been in and out of recession, but that number has only increased and not decreased. So the things that you're talking about doing, Dean, of having the money in the bank to pay off the card, uh, that's not what the average person is able to do, unfortunately. Well, that's true. And, you know, and we, live in a, we live in a different time than even... 30 years ago and uh, people are living from paycheck to paycheck and and of course we have more and more demands upon uh, uh, upon us uh, in order to make ends meet uh, even car loans these days like mm-hmm. when when in the 80s car loans uh, they were they were basically made for three or four years. Right now they're like six and seven years. Yeah. You know, like and 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 uh, and we can look at those things all the time, uh, seeing how much uh, the how the credit industry has expanded well beyond its uh, reasonableness at this point in time. And so here's a question for two people in the business. What's the what do you see happening next? I mean, is this just going to continue to some great degree in terms of our avail the availability of credit for us? Or are there you know you know what I'm asking, right? I know it's a, a, a um well, I'm I'm going to expand on Thank that. Thank you. One a you know bit. what I'm saying. So what I'm going to say is is that you know and this, crystal ball. The, that's mm-hmm. the word I was yeah, looking yeah, for. Yeah. Crystal ball. Sorry oh, about that. That's okay. But the the, the until we get our education system to identify that this is a need within our system of 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 getting uh, students to understand what debt is and how to deal with it. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me when people come in to see me and they say, they always say, after we've explained things and we get them on track and we make out a budget for them, they, they basically say, why isn't this taught in school? Mm-hmm. All the time we hear that. Why is this not taught in school? And and we and my often answer is, well, you know, they want you to know how to do a quadratic equation or how to cal- solve a calculus uh, question but they certainly don't want you to know how to bang balance your bank statement. Mm-hmm. You know that might be really useful in life, <laughs> but uh, but you know, um, uh, and we have that ongoing discussion all the time. But until to answer your question, until there is a, there is a real identification that this is a needed function within the education system, as it was when we went to school. We had we had this when we went to school. Um, uh, then I think that the system is going to continue on the way it is. You go and and. For for all intents and purposes, like why does the government or businesses want this to end? That's the other thing too, right. because there's no motivation. There's no motive. Mm-hmm. Banks are making huge money out of right. this thing. The government, every time somebody buys something, wages are being paid, GST's been paid. Yes, all of this stuff is being uh, facilitating the the government's uh, ongoing uh, efforts to collect money. Right. So everybody has a stake in this. Yes. So mm-hmm. it's going to be really difficult to. Uh, ratch this thing back to something that is reasonable, but we have to be get more education out there. Is my philosophy? 
Yeah. And I think just building on, on that, Dean, one thing I've seen just currently, I think into the future here, is the idea of people's fixation on their credit score. So now, you know, the free credit score online, monthly credit monitoring, what's your credit score? You can't get that apart without a credit score. It's, to me, there's some agenda there of making people focus on the wrong indicator, which is a credit score. It's a measure of how much money you make the banks as opposed to, are you solvent? Do you have money saved? Are you doing the right things, paying everything on a monthly basis? So, exactly. Um, so I think there is this grand misdirection that's happening, unfortunately, and most people aren't aware of it. Yes, absolutely. So it's up to each of us to make sure the people in our in our own little families, our own little worlds are aware of the necessity. And it all comes, for me, it all comes down to being accountable, like being responsible for what I'm doing. There is nobody who's going to save me. If I'm 20 years old, 30 years old, or 60 years old, nobody's going to save me. I've got to figure out how to manage this myself. And, and I think you guys are perfect examples in terms of working for a company, having a company that really assists people in a significant way to figure their way out uh, when they get to that end and go, okay, this is it. I can't do any more. I, I need to take some action. I don't know what that is, but I need to find somebody uh, that's going to help me. This is when you go to Sands & Associates. We've been talking with Dean Gurney, who's president of Sands & Associates. And of course, you know Blair Manton. He's also from Sands & Associates. And here's the deal. If you want to check out their website, it's a terrific one. It's just chock-a-block of good, good information. It's sands-trustee.com. Or if you'd like to give them a call and send Set up a, a first free visit, 1-800-661-3030, as well to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt how and when to use the province's British Columbia's statute of limitations on debt. That's what this segment is all about. So, first of all, Blair, you've got to explain it to me because yeah. I don't have a clue. Well, I have a little bit of a clue. Mm-hmm. What is the statute of limitations on debt? Yeah, so this is, is something when I sit down with folks and I explain to them about this concept, they just have no idea that, the, you know, why isn't this more well-known? Why don't I already know about this? So the idea of it, you know, a statute of limitations, I think most people have a general sense that if something happens, you know, if you want to take some action against it, you know, if someone caused you an injury, for example, you can't wait forever to decide that you're going to, you know, cause that person to, to be charged or something like that. You have to take action within a specific time, okay? okay? Now, the same thing applies for debt. So what it means in a debt situation is if you owe somebody money, they can try to collect from you for you know a long time, but they can really only have a legal avenue against you for a very short period of time, shorter than people think, and that's two years. Okay. That's the statute of limitations in BC. And I think two years is the same uh, uh, period of time if you're wanting to charge somebody or, or take uh, legal action as well. Two years from the date of whatever it is, if it's an accident or whatever. Yeah, so you'd, want, you'd want to get your own legal advice for that stuff, but yeah. definitely from a debt point of view, and the Limitations Act is very broad, so it does cover many things, but cool. from a limitation for a debt, yeah, it's two years, um, and it's important to know when that clock starts ticking because there are things you can do, you know, maybe not even knowing it, that reset that clock and actually aren't in your best interest. Okay, let's talk about those. When does that debt start ticking, or when does the clock start ticking on that? Yeah, so there's a couple, a couple triggers. So, you know, one is when was the debt incurred? Um, 
when was the last payment made against the debt? So, you know, if you borrowed the money once and never made any payments, okay, well, that's your day. You know, that that's the date that we're going to start ticking from. If you borrowed the money a long time ago and you just continued making payments on it for a period of time, it's when was your last payment made? That's okay. when your clock would start ticking. So if I've had this, pay, if I've been making this payment for 18 months and then I stop, yep. then it's at that point. It's not from when I first got it. Exactly. It's at that point. Okay, good yeah. to know. So what's really important there now, the third way too, is you could also uh, give a written an acknowledgement. You could sign something, say, yes, I agree that I owe this debt, and then that would reset your statute of limitations clock as well. Okay. But that, that's pretty uncommon. Most of the time, what happens is people think they're doing the right thing, um, and they think they're working with a collection agent that's actually very nice and very reasonable, and you know they're a bit good cop, bad cop sometimes, but often the collection agent will say, you know what, I know you can't pay very much, just make a good faith payment this month this month. You know what? Send us in $10, $20, $50 or something like that. And the individual thinks, wow, this person's really working with me. They understand I can't pay very much. They can't reduce the debt, but at least they're not going to make me pay a whole lot. Oftentimes what's happened is the collection agent has realized this person's at you know 23 months of no payments. If they go another month and they don't pay, the statute of limitations kicks in and they can never collect the full amount. So sometimes making those small payments, all you're doing is making sure that you're never going to be free of that two-year statute of limitations. Because let's say you went you went that 23 months, then you paid it, and yep. then it starts again, starts right? starts all over again. Whereas if I just left it, I'd yeah. be more free and clear, exactly. or at least in a different place than when I started. Mm-hmm. So are there exceptions to that two-year rule? Um, you know, there are some claims that just, you know, aren't subject to statute of limitations at all. Um, you know, if there's a civil claim, if someone goes to court and enforces a judgment against you, that's not subject to the two-year rule. There's a much longer timeline for that. Okay. Um, you know, debts owing to the government, like CRA and student loans, you know, very clearly there's no statute of limitations for government debt. Um, you know, if you owe the government money, you either need to pay it, you need to deal with it through a bankruptcy or a proposal, um, or essentially that money's not going to go away. Okay, cool. So, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, you know, other debts, you know, things that would be common sense-wise, you know, arrears of child support and spousal support. Not that anyone would want to do this, but you can't wait it out for two years and then expect that your liability would be extinguished. It's not. So we sort of talked about when the two-year period, the two-year period starts and stops. Can you give us sort of an example of when waiting until the debts are statute barred and how that solves a person's financial problems? Yeah, so it, it all depends on the individual's circumstances. But, you know, I deal with a lot of senior citizens um, in, in my office. And, you know, sometimes as I sit down and we, and we look through all the debts, there'll be a number of debts where they, you know, they haven't paid on them for, you know, five years, six years or something, but they're still very worried about it. Okay. They're still very worried that, you know, a bailiff's going to show up tomorrow at my at my door and start seizing my assets, or they're worried they're going to get, you know, dragged in, into court, um, and, you know, they're, they're going to be, um, you know, publicly shamed or, or things like that. So, um, you know, essentially, if the two-year limitation has already expired, they don't need to have those worries. Okay, cool. Uh, what about... Uh, when the statute could apply, but a person wants to take action anyways. How does that work? Yeah, so it's definitely, it's no fun owing somebody money. And very clearly, the statute of limitations, just because that's over, that doesn't mean that you don't owe the money anymore. Okay. What it means is that you can never be forced to pay. So if two years has elapsed and a collection agent is hounding you and threatening you that they're going to take legal action against you, you know, you can rest relatively easily knowing that they're not going to be able to take any legal action against you. 
but they're still going to harass you. They're still going to have negative notations on your credit. So sometimes there's a lot to be gained by actually saying, even though legally I could never be forced to pay these debts, I know in good faith I borrowed this money and in good faith I want to take some action to deal with that. Okay, so you could help me do that or help someone do that. Exactly. So, you know, quite often we'll explain to somebody, you know, these debts are probably statute barred. You know, to the best of our knowledge, it looks like they're never going to sue you. You're probably never going to have to go to court and they can't force you to pay. Um, But perhaps for your peace of mind, for you sleeping better at night, uh, you want to go through either a bankruptcy or a proposal proceeding just to know that you face things head on and at least the harassment is going to stop. See, it just makes so much sense to me that talking to somebody like you is going to put a whole bunch of things, not only down on paper, but maybe help me sleep better Mm -hmm. because... Because I'm a kind of person that I would want to pay back my debts. You know, like if I borrowed money, I'm going to pay it back eventually. Mm -hmm. But I want to do it in an easier or in an easy way, right? So that doesn't cause stress on me or my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can help me figure that out. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, too, is looking at the person's budget and figuring out reasonably what can they afford to pay back on their debts. Okay, because sometimes and especially, again, the senior citizen demographic, there's such an imbalance between what's being paid on debts, paid on interest every month and what's being paid to live. You know, right. what are the necessities of life that are, you know, suffering and the grocery bill is, is not getting getting paid or they're barely eating because all the money is, go, is going to interest. So when I sit down with somebody, I like to look at, well, what can you afford to pay back on debt? You know, which of these debts might be statute barred versus not? And are you going to be better off continuing to do what you're doing? Or are you going to be better off if we look at either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal? And I guess the, the sense of relief that some folks feel is pretty significant. Yeah, huge, hugely so. Um, you know, we get, you know, bouquets of flower and car- <laughs> flowers and cards and, and different things with just, you know, the nicest words you, you can imagine that people feel, you know, it's, it's life-changing when they can wake up and, you know, either armed with the knowledge that, you know, this person that's calling and threatening to sue me, they don't have a leg to stand on, so I'm just not going to worry about it. Or these persons that are calling me, they're going to have to stop because now I'm dealing with Sands and Associates and they're going to get in the middle. They're going to stop all the calls and they're going to help me work out something that's reasonable to pay on these debts. If I can do it, you're going to mm-hmm. help me figure that out. Yeah. If any of this information resonates with you, it's such good information because we're not alone. And I think that's one of the key things to remember, too, that folks thinking, oh, my God, nobody else is experiencing this. That's mm-hmm. just not the case. No, that's absolutely a, a fact of life. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, too. I often sit down with families that come in at at once and, you know, I'll do the consultation for the individual that we're talking about and then, you know, mom or dad might be at at the table too and they'll say, well, why don't you talk to me a little bit about my situation? Um, And then as soon as people understand, you know, there there is the opportunity to get help, you know, they don't have to carry this burden by themselves. Um, You know, a lot of openness within within the family can sometimes happen at, at those meetings and we can say, you know, you know, we've been hiding things for a while. Let's get it out into the open and let's deal with the family's debt issue. Because there's so much, there's so many things out there that will protect us or at least look after us a little bit better than maybe that we know about right now too, right? Yeah. Whether it be the statute of limitations or just even the idea of putting together a consumer proposal or, or even if a bankruptcy makes sense or just even coming up with some sort of plan to make these payments or to pay off this debt. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, ex- exactly. Very cool. So again, if any if this information resonates with you, uh, B- uh, Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, he's the guy to ca- talk to. You can get that financial fresh start, start feeling a little bit better, a little less stress. It's very easy to do. You can do it a couple of ways. You can check out the website, sands-trustee.com, or you can give them a call. It's an easy telephone number to remember, 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about four common causes of tax debt and what to do if you can't pay. So when you file an income tax return, it could be a financial win if you're expecting a refund. I know I've been in that place every once in a while. Not very often, though, Mm -hmm. right? Do you get a bunch of money back? But it's a happy day, right? You get the check from the government. That's nice when they give you something back for a change. Right? Absolutely. Now, the flip side of it, it can be pretty stressful if you're one of the thousands of Canadians who have unpaid tax debt. So that means I'm owing, right? Exactly. And Elaine, you know, the first thing I'd, I'd love for people to understand is not filing a return because you think you owe them money is the wrong decision. Um, so even if you owe the government money, they probably already know that. They generally have information from your employer or a bunch of information about you. And by not filing a return, you're actually in a worse situation than if you file a return and owe money. So our piece of advice for everybody is always file your returns every year. This is fascinating to me that Canada Revenue Agency last year disclosed that nearly half of the unpaid billions of dollars of tax debt that they are owed is from individuals, Mm -hmm. not companies, not large corporations, but just regular folks. Yeah, that was surprising to me. And I think if you asked even, you know, any financial expert, you know, hey, what do you think is the split of, you know, is it 80% owed by corporations? I thought it was 80, 90% of the tax that is owed by corporations, you know, who are deferring it or not paying or whatever. But no, it's 50-50. So um, CRA can see that there's a lot of folks who get behind on their taxes and it's something they can take aggressive means to collect on, which we'll definitely talk about either in this segment or in a future segment. Right. But yeah, a lot of people in Canada, they end up owing the government money. So I think today's segment will be good to understand, you know, why does that arise? Why do you end up owing money at the end of the year? Okay, you asked the question, why do we end up with so much tax debt? Like, what's going on? Yeah, and, and you know, this this segment, it comes from me seeing my clients and having them tell me, you know, I wish I had done this differently or wish I hadn't done this or didn't work out the way that I had anticipated. And the number one thing I find that people find doesn't work out the way they thought is cashing in RRSPs. So people are cashing them in when they shouldn't or... What's well, the, what is that? Yeah. And just to make sure we're all on, on the same page. Please. So RRSPs are, you know, registered retirement savings yeah. plans. So these are the money that you can put away um, for your retirement. And then when you put it away, you get a tax deduction that comes off of your income. Now, the challenge is that when you withdraw money from your RRSPs, those funds need to be added back to your income. And that can often trigger a balance owing. And the reason for that is when you withdraw your RRSPs, financial institutions, they will withhold a little bit of income tax, and it can vary a little bit from institution to institution and definitely from province to province, but very rarely is it enough. 
because your bank, as much as they might be able to predict, they really don't know your marginal tax rate. So if you're calling, uh, cashing in RRSPs and your bank is withholding, let's say, 20% of the amount that you, you withdrew, so you cash in 10000 you get 8000 they hold back 2000 to the government, and that might be less than half of what you owe. If you're sitting in a 50% tax bracket, you might have to pay the government literally half of those RRSPs that you're cashing in, which a lot of folks don't think that far down the road. They're just trying to solve the immediate issue. Right. And then when they cash in the RRSPs, it's at tax time next year, they see, oh my God, I've got a balance owing. And sometimes they repeat the cycle again. They cash in more RRSPs to pay that balance and then end up owing more in the following year. Right. So never, I mean, can is it fair to say never a good idea to cash in your RRSP? Well, never is a tough thing because there might be sometimes when it makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. So, you know, let's think about if you've had really high income for a period of a few years, you've been in that 50% tax bracket, but then for this year, for whatever reason, you haven't been able to work, your income is really low. In those cases, pulling out your RRSPs might make a whole lot of sense okay. because probably you need the money to live, first off. But then second off, probably your tax rate is a lot lower because you're not in that, you haven't earned as much income, so right. you don't have to give as much to the government. So there are times when it makes sense, but I think one thing that I might put the never on to Elaine, just to give some certainty here, is let's say never cash in your RRSPs to pay debts unless you've spoken to a trustee first and you understand that these are actually protected assets. Exactly. And that's and I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I was thinking. They're protected. And that was a, a surprise to me when I first learned that. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled on, on this show, Elaine, I think we've got some brilliant listeners out there that uh, fewer and fewer people are coming into my office and saying that they've cashed in their RRSPs. Good. Before we started doing this show, you know, one every couple of weeks, I'd be, you know, a little bit despondent internally and not trying to make the person feel too bad, no. but explaining to them, you know, you did something you didn't have to do. And it seems like word is finally getting out. You know, you can protect RRSPs. Yeah, it's an automatic reaction for sure. You're in debt. Where have I got some cash that That's I can right. get, disp- you know, so-called disposable income? That might be that might be what you think and then using it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so working multiple jobs. Yeah, definitely. This is probably the number two thing that I see causing people to go into tax debt. And it's a case of you're trying to do the right thing, uh, but sometimes it can come back to buy you. And what that can mean is in Vancouver, a lot of people need more than one income to make ends meet. Maybe they can't get full-time hours at one job uh, or even full-time hours aren't enough to pay, you know, rent and living expenses and things like that. Now, the challenge is when you sit down with your employer and you figure out what your average income is going to be and they set a certain amount to withhold your taxes, that's basically set up. You shouldn't have a balance owing if you only work that job. But when you add a second job, it's often the case that that second employer doesn't know anything about the first employer. Right. And the taxes they're going to withhold are assuming that this is the only income that you're going to have. And again, the more income in Canada you earn, the more on a percentage basis you have to give to the government. So it's very likely that that second job, even though you think you're adding to your income every month, at the end of the year, you might have a pretty significant tax bill because a bunch of that income should have been remitted to Revenue Canada. Got it. Okay. So the solution there is just to be transparent with both employers. So, you know, go to your new employer and say, you know what, here's my base income level for my day job or whatever other job. um, And here's the amount of tax I need to get withheld. And your employer will work with you. They'll hold back whatever it is. And let's say they hold back too much. Well, you've just got yourself a tax refund. Exactly. You're giving the government an interest-free loan, which we know is not great, but it's better than the alternative of actually having a balance to clear. 
Do you have any statistics in your in your head offhand about the number of people who uh, come to you for assistance who are self-employed? Like, is there mm-hmm. sort of a percentage? Of, I mean, there must be. Oh, yeah. It's, what it's, kind it's, of percentage I'd say it? it's probably between 20 and 30% of folks. It's, okay. So being self-employed yeah. is a significant uh, sort of category then of, as part of this. Oh, exactly, Elena. That, that's our third thing we're going to talk about today is just, just being self-employed. Um, you know, you really have to step into the shoes of CRA. You have to be your own accountant. You have to calculate the amount of income that you're going to earn. You have to forecast the amount of taxes you're going to have to pay. And ignorance, unfortunately, is not a not a defense. Not um, an excuse. CRA doesn't require you to have any education to be a, a small business owner, but they assume that you're going to know everything there is to know about remitting taxes and CPP and EI contributions and all of those things on a monthly basis. Um, so when you're self-employed, nobody's remitting those things on your behalf. So is there is there uh, like a the number one best place to go to for information when you're self-employed to sort of make sure that that base is covered? You know, it, it's kind of funny, but I'd send you to CRA's website. Okay. Um, it's actually a great resource. Oh, they, they want people to comply. They want to be as helpful as they can. It's been amazing to me how easy it is to, you know, to set up an online access account. You can access your past year's tax returns, your tax slips and things like that. Okay. So being self-employed, there's a ton of resources on CRA's website um, that will help you, you know, basically crack that nut and understand exactly what you need to do to be self-employed. Good. Um, you know, one thing that you've got to be careful of too um, is I meet with a lot of people that are self-employed, and they say, you know, I, I make lots of money, but just not enough to pay CRA. And oh dear. at the end of the day, that means that you're actually not making money yeah. because what you have to do is you can't treat these tax payments as discretionary, something that you can either do or not do. Um, you know. Physically, CRA is not going to come and take the money from you now, but they are going to come and take the money in a few years if they don't get these remittances on a regular basis. Yeah. So it is the case that if you're not able to pay CRA, pay yourself, pay your expenses, then you don't have a viable business, unfortunately. And that's a discussion, you know, it's a very gentle and delicate discussion you have to have with folks. And oftentimes there's ways to figure out what's going wrong with their business and how to fix it. But if the only way the business can survive is by deferring payments to CRA, um, it's really just you're delaying the inevitable, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, what about the GST, not remitting GST? And I and I know that that, well, I, I do know that that can cause problems. Yeah, absolutely. So GST, again, similar to, to well, when you're self-employed, is just another type of tax that you have to collect. And not everybody has to collect GST. So obviously, you know, speak to your accountant, your bookkeeper, your mileage may vary. But um, self-employed individuals who earn more than $30,000 in revenue are required to register with CRA and to get a GST number. And then once you've got that GST number, um, you've got to basically uh, withhold and remit uh, 5% of your sales back to to CRA. And you might do that annually, you might do it quarterly, you might even do it monthly. But at the end of the day, what you have to consider is that CRA is going to call those trust amounts, meaning that money that you're holding in trust for the government. And it can be so tempting, you know, if it's been a really tough month and you can barely pay the employees, but you've got a bunch of money sitting there getting ready to be remitted to CRA for GST, it can be really tempting to use those funds in operations. And just to think, you know, I'm going to use the money this month, but catch it up next month. I see that again and again with clients who, unfortunately, the next month is not what we thought and so on and so forth, and they can build up a big debt on GST, yeah. which is amongst the worst of the worst debts, unfortunately, to CRA because, again, they say it's trust money. It's money you were collecting from us. It's 5% on your sales. It wasn't your sales. It was just the taxes, and it's money that should have went directly back to CRA. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to I used to have to uh, collect GST on work that I did, and mm-hmm. uh, I was just merely, I was the flow through of the money, right? Yeah. 
I collected it, That's and then exactly I had to pay it. It, it yep. was not my. It was not mine to uh, not mine to spend. Yeah, and then just one other little point here, Elaine. And we encourage everyone to get you know good accounting and bookkeeping advice. But if you're making purchases in your business, you know keep track of the GST that you're paying yes. because you are able to deduct that from the amounts that you have to remit to the government. So it's important to get both sides on it: the amount that you've collected, but also what you've paid on your purchases. Exactly. So can we cover this last this last part of it about what what do you do if you owe the government money or can we go there at this moment? Yeah, I think we should give people some hope, right? Yes. We've been a little bit doom, doom and <laughs> gloom, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, you know, I get calls every single day. I had a call this morning uh, where the question was, you know, I owe all this money to the government, but my understanding is if I go through a bankruptcy or I do a proposal, the government comes out the other side, all of their debt survives. And that is the case in the US. It's not the case in Canada. Mm. So if you've got money owing to the government, even if it is for these trust amounts for GST, um, it's possible to make a deal in one of two ways. So one is if the balance is so great that even offering them, you know, a 20% repayment, a 30%, whatever like that, if that's not even possible, you could choose to file for personal bankruptcy. Any of our longtime listeners will know bankruptcy is not as bad as you think. And we're going to go through probably a bunch of that in, in later segments here. Um, but a bankruptcy is one option. A better option or definitely something at least folks should try is to try to make a consumer proposal. You can do that on tax debt. You can do that on just about any consumer debt under the sun. You usually offer offer up in the range of 20 to 40% of the debt outstanding, no additional interest, and nobody can bother you while you make those reduced payments. Excellent. And I do want to mention as we as we close off this segment that uh, to come and see you, my first appointment to see you to sort of lay out my mm-hmm. situation, that is a free consultation. That Absolutely stands in free. Yeah, yep. which is really important. And these guys, the whole team is just so knowledgeable and thoughtful and kind to sit down and go through all your stuff and then you can figure out which is the best option. Another great option for you is if you're not quite ready there to take that uh, that first appointment, uh, go to the website sans-trustee.com. It's just filled with great information, all kinds of questions and answers uh, that you'll probably have. Or if you want to give them a call, it's easy. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Melanie Schroeder's on the line with us right now. So this is interesting about Melanie. Not only is she a registered professional counselor, but also a chartered professional accountant. And she uses both of those uh, skills to help people, uh, plain and simple, help them. She's a partner at K.H. Burnaby Chartered Professional Accountants. She's got a very good can-do attitude, which you're going to hear as we talk about uh, couples' financial issues. And we've all probably been in this position, good and bad, uh, where things have come up with our with our uh, partner, and they've been difficult conversations, or we, or we could have used some help do it. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So what are some of the key financial issues that couples who come to you face? Uh, Probably, I mean, you know, they're fighting about money, but I think it's really just about, you know, one likes to save and one likes to spend. Hmm. 
The, the yin and the yang. The yeah. different philosophies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really just like that. You know, you get one that like gets that look on their face and they're like, oh, they just keep spending money. And what kind of advice do you give them? How do you give them a hand with that? Because that's a big one. It is really a big one. You know, I, it's about learning to speak each other's languages and, and a little bit of compromise. Compromise. Com- <laughs> that we lovely. Could, yeah, that, that word. That, what what do you mean by, by speak each other's language, Melanie? Because I, I see it in my uh, practice as well. I often have uh, you know couples come in, and you can tell one couple is or one side of the couple is kind of blaming the other person, and they're just they're talking at each other, not to each other. Um, so I'm I'm wondering how do you get that kind of this shared language? Are there just you know certain things, certain ground rules that you set to help couples talk about money in the right way? Definitely. I mean, we go through and we start learning about how to communicate, and there's different counseling tools that we talk about and you know, feedback formulas, and I really like to use nonviolent communication. I don't know if you've... That sounds good, but yeah, I, no, I don't know much not, about it. <laughs> <laughs> anything nonviolent's it's good. Anything nonviolent, the, the Marshall Rosenberg with the giraffe ears, and it's a, a really great tool, but it, it is, and have you heard of the love languages? Mm. No, I don't. I no, let's tell yeah. Blair about the let, love let's languages. Let's explore, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, love languages, there's, and I, you know, I wish I could actually... I hadn't even thought about bringing it up, so I can't even tell you the author of it. But it's, you know, this the idea that there's five different love languages and everybody speaks their own love language and they, they will show love in their own love language. And I actually mm. believe that, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything and, and money is the same way. So we'll feel and do money the same way that we do everything else. So how we spend money is going to be different how we all spend money is different, right? So yeah. we'll talk about and do money differently from our partners. So it's about listening as a, as a counselor when I'm in counseling sessions. It's about listening to how one person talks about money and the, how listening to how the other person talks about money and then using the language that the other spouse uses and saying it back to the, to the first spouse. So I'm, in a sense, an interpreter in that situation. Hmm. So just trying to kind of bridge the, the communication gap bet- between them there. That makes That's a, right. Makes a and lot then of sense. You, you, you're kind of like teaching them each other's language. And then as they start to see that, then they learn each other's language. Right. And my experience, Melanie, is, is I find as I speak with my clients, you know, sometime our relationship with money is so deep-seated, you know, it goes back to our childhood and our parents and how were our <laughs> parents with money? Did we just not talk about it? Did we love money? Did we hate money? So I find people, they can bring a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, baggage to meetings with me, and sometimes that's just an individual. So I can imagine, you know, if two couples have very different upbringings, very different groundings from a money perspective, it can be difficult even to act as an interpreter between them. Is that that correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you'll get somebody with boundary issues who will go out and they'll, you know, want to give all the money, you know, all of their joint money away. And the other person is like, what are you doing? Like, why are you giving all our money away? Why don't you ever want to keep any of our money? Mm-hmm. Or you'll get someone who has self-esteem issues, for example, and they don't feel that they deserve to have any money. And they're going to treat it differently than somebody who doesn't have that kind of feeling about it. That's right. So what are, have you got a couple of tips for opening up uh, a dialogue with your spouse to talk about money? So I'm listening to this interview and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I can see how that's playing out in my house. What do I, what do, I do then? Opening up a dialogue is really about being vulnerable and just saying, you know, here's how I feel about money. Um, you know, when you spend it, here's how I'm feeling and I'm not feeling safe. Because it really comes down to you, like when we're upset and angry, 
we're generally afraid of something. So if we can make it about that instead of blaming the other person, then, okay. we, be- yeah. Yeah, then we become vulnerable. And that's really the root of nonviolent communication is making it about our own feelings as opposed to blaming the other person for doing something wrong. I think I'd need to have the help of a counselor in the same room at the same time, Melanie. <laughs> I think we all do sometimes, even me. <laughs> right? Is there, is there some uh, um, good ideas or, or the best ideas around having a budget, having a budget system uh, between a couple that, let's say, have different issues or different ways of dealing with money? Yeah, you know, the best budget system I've ever seen is is a simple one where you, you know, you have your joint funds that you pay for the household and you you have things that you save for together and then you each have some of your own spending money because you really need to have something of your own, right? Like we all need to be able to go out and not answer to somebody about money that we're spending, something that we've we earn for ourselves, and then you also need to have something that you work on together because it's important for a partnership to have something that you're creating together. And and how about moving forward from there in terms of, so you figured a lot of things out at this point, and now I want to set some financial goals. I'm newly married, I'm reasonably young. How do I, what's the best way to do that? Setting Goal setting is, to me, you always start with the end result and then um, reverse engineer it and then create smart goals. So you want to create the specific, measurable, um, they've got to be realistic and they've got to be the time-based so mm-hmm. um just reverse engineer them so you know that in 10 years you want to have a house right what do you need how much do you have to you know how much do you have to save every month and also hiring a coach is a great way to do it <laughs> we're yeah. going to you know you're to your financial planner a lot of the banks nowadays also have financial planners right in the branch so you know, for a young couple, you don't always have a lot of extra money. You can access a lot of free resources there. Yeah, I think that approach, Melanie, I, I hope listeners really picked up on that is, yeah, begin with the end in mind, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. If, if you wanted to get into, into real estate, for example, there's a big down payment that you're going to have to save. And if you, to use your words, you reverse engineer back, what does that mean per paycheck, even per day? Um, you know, suddenly it can become more real than just this goal that I'll never reach because it's so big and so daunting. So I think that's a mm-hmm. very smart way to come at it. It's a way I encourage my clients to thing too is, you know, the end goal of this is not the bankruptcy. The end goal is you being debt-free, having your credit rebuilt, you being financially secure and being able to, you know, potentially help others in your life. Let's work backwards from there. The first step, we got to cleanse all the debt away, but going forward, there's a bunch of things that you're going to do to be successful. So I think that's a great approach. Yeah, that's how I do everything. When's the best idea if you're, so I've gone through a couple of your, uh, 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 your good advice, your tips, and they're not quite working. What's, are there some very specific clues uh, that will show up when it's time to get professional help? Well, I think that that's the clue right there, actually. Like, you know, these things work if you do them. And if it's not working, then there's some kind of a block. And it's usually a belief that you're holding. Either you don't believe you can do it, which is, you know, an indicator of an underlying belief that you need to clear up. And resources. Yeah. What about resources out there? Have you come across any that are good places for folks to start with? In Around couples' financial issues? Yeah, and how to get started and hopefully resolve some of them. There's, there's a book called The Millionaire Mindset that has a, the very simple uh, financial system that I was talking about. It's fantastic, and it actually talks about a lot of the beliefs around money that people can have and couples can can have together and it talks about the different types of people and like spenders or savers or money monks i think is one of them Mm. and 
um, it can really help people open up conversations. And then just being able to communicate. So the... Um, nonviolent communication. Excellent. We've been talking with Melanie Schroeder, who's both a registered professional counselor and a chartered professional accountant. She's a partner at KH Burnaby Chartered Professional Accountants. If you'd like to get a hold of her or learn more about her, this is the website, kempsharvey.com slash Burnaby. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Go to the website, sands-trustee.com if you'd like more information on the kinds of things that Sands and Associates can offer you in terms of money issues and debt. You can book a free consultation with one of the experts and start living a debt-free life. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.